Well, good morning, Hellas Church. Uh, my name is Andrew. I serve as a pastor here. I want to welcome you to our final gathering tonight here at Fremont Baptist Church. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles one last time and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, to the passage our friend Zeke read for us a moment ago. And if you are unaware, uh, this is our final gathering here at FBC because we're in the process of moving. We're going to relocate our expression up to Emmanuel Bible Church on 50th, just south of the Woodland Park Zoo. So next week will represent that shift. So don't come here, go there. And if you do go there, uh, go a little bit earlier. We're going to bump our gathering time up one hour, moving from 5 p.m. to 4 p.m. So make note of that. Uh, we have a lot to be grateful for as we consider the past six years and how God has been gracious to our faith family and over the course of that time, multiplying us in a variety of unexpected ways so that we sit today as one faith family in the city of Seattle who gathers in one of three uh, expressions. We have this Fremont expression, we have a West Seattle expression, and then of course we have a North Seattle expression now, and all three expressions gather together on Sundays to uh, rally around Jesus and to celebrate the gospel and to study the scriptures together, and uh, we're all a part of that. In fact, this building kind of represents ground zero of that movement as God has kind of birthed that, that movement and catalyzed that multiplication from all that he's been doing right here at Fremont Baptist Church, and we're grateful for the time that we've had here, and as we turn our attention to the future, shifting into Emmanuel Bible next week, uh, we do so prayerfully expecting God to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine as we run into the future together by faith. And that's precisely what we're going to do. We're going to run together by faith because that's what we do as followers of Jesus. You see, the Christian life isn't a casual stroll as much as it is a long-distance race. It is a race in which we are all swept up in, a race in which we are all called to run. And so we're not just walking into the future by faith, we're running into the future by faith. I don't know if you've noticed how many times the New Testament would describe the Christian life using the metaphor of running and racing. Just consider some of these examples in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. There's a moment when the Apostle Paul is describing his own walk with Jesus, and this is what he describes. He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That word translated course there is race. If only I may finish my race. That's the imagery he's drawing upon. And then again in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do this to, to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And then years later, just before Paul is about to leave this world, his race is soon to be completed. Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He tells his young disciple, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, meaning he's going out in stride with Jesus. He's not giving up. He's not cutting his faith short of the goal line. He says, I've finished the race. I'm going to die in faith. That's where, that's where Paul is in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And then as you turn your attention to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, this is precisely the imagery that is being put before us. 
as we're reminded once again that we all are part of a race, that we all have a race that has been set before us, and we are to run it by faith. And this drive, this reminder, this this call to take up your place in the race of faith is a very significant call for us to hear as it was a very significant call for the original readers of the book of Hebrews to hear. You see, the book of Hebrews was written to the first generations of Christians who at this point in time were having a hard time running their race of faith. Many of them were pulling up early. Many of them were pulling out of the race because things got so heavy for them. The headwinds were blowing too strong against the church in the first century. And so many Jewish believers, those who were Jewish by birth and yet came to put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises and pictures, laws, and ceremonies, they were beginning to shrink back under the weight of the pressure and the intimidation that they were feeling in the first century. And so the writer of Hebrews writes this book to warn them, hey, don't give up. And to encourage them to keep going, moving forward. Don't pull up too early. Complete the race of faith. It's going to be worth it in the end. And so all the stories of faith that we've been studying over the past several weeks, they all shared that in common. These were men and women who lived by faith and they were in it for the long haul. There were men and women who ran the race of faith and they completed their race. And so the writer would string all of these stories together in Hebrews chapter 11, just peppering them one after another to encourage Christians to continue running in the same race, not to give up, that we are all looking for a future that is to be desired, a future that God has promised us. And by grace, he will forge that future out for his people. And so we don't want to pull up early. We want to complete the race. We want to run by faith. And so when you step into Hebrews chapter 12, you get into verse 1, there's a transition out of all the stories that we've been studying in chapter 11, and you see the connection there in the first word, the word therefore. Of course, I've mentioned this to you before. Anytime you're reading the Bible and you come across the word therefore, it's a hinge word, and it's designed to make you look backwards before moving forwards. You don't ever step into a conversation and start it with therefore, right? Because there's nothing to look back to. That'd be awkward. That'd be weird. Nobody would know what you're talking about. And same thing when you're reading the Bible. When you come to the word therefore, don't just run forward at, with all that would, is attached to it or all that would follow it. Let that word therefore turn your attention backwards before moving forward. And so basically what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's bringing all of these stories into a climax of application, Saying, in light of all the men and women of faith, uh, all the men and women who lived and died in faith, therefore you now run your race of faith. He's, he's drawing it towards an application saying, here are the ways you are to respond to all the things you've heard about in the lives of the men and women you've been studying. And so we want to consider then this passage and we want to consider our response to all the stories of faith that we've been looking at together. And as we consider how we're to respond to all the things that we've been studying over the past few weeks, there are simple five uh, words I want to put before you, five ways that those stories of faith are to give shape to our stories of faith so that we might run in the race, so we might not give up, pull up too early, and bring everything to completion. The first word that I want to give you is the word inspiration. There's a lot of inspiration to be drawn from the stories of faith we studied in Hebrews chapter 11. 
In fact, we're, in, we're intended to read those stories and to allow those stories to inspire our own stories of faith, knowing that all of those men and women, they lived lives that testified to the faithfulness of God, the same God that you and I are in relationship with, the same God who loves us and sent his son Jesus to die for us. We are to read how they trusted God through thick and thin in life and in death and be inspired to trust God as well. This is why the first phrase there is, since we are, sur- since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, when it talks about a cloud of witnesses there in verse 1, understand that What picture we shouldn't draw into our minds is the picture of a cloud of witnesses of of these men and women who've lived and died in faith and now they're kind of sitting in a circle in heaven looking down upon us and observing our lives. They're not witnesses in that kind of way. This is why we don't honor the saints of old in in terms of worship or adoration. This is why we don't pray to saints within within our understanding of the Christian faith. We don't go in that direction because when it says we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, it's not talking about men and women who are observing our lives who can somehow uh, intervene in our lives in this world. Instead, it's written that way to show these are men and women who serve as examples to us. They're not observing us. They are examples for us. They are ones that we look to because their lives bore witness to the faithfulness of God. And so we consider their stories to to draw inspiration, to learn that we too can trust our God through thick and thin in life and in death. So we want to draw inspiration from the stories of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. I love what Adia Betozer would tell us to do in light of all of these stories. He's thinking about Hebrews chapter 11 when he writes these words in his little book called The Pursuit of God. And he tells readers, I want you to come near to the holy men and women of the past and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. Draw near to the men and women of the past and feel the heat of their desire after God. You feel cold in your relationship with the Lord Draw near to the men and women of the past, those who lived and died in faith, who pursued their God and who trusted their God. Feel the heat of their desire and let that heat kindle something in you. Let the heat of their desire for God restart and reboot something in your own heart. He would go on to say, these men and women mourned for God. They prayed and wrestled and sought for God day and night, in season and out. That is when they felt like it and when they didn't. And when they found God, get this, the finding was all the sweeter for the long sacrifice. So we want to draw inspiration. We want the heat of their desire for God to jump into our own hearts and to inspire our own pursuit and our own life of faith. I remember in college coming across the journals of a guy by the name of Jim Elliott. And I remember reading those journals all through college. It's a lot of journals, but this was a man who loved his God, who trusted the Savior, who gave his life serving Jesus by bringing the gospel to a group of of unreached peoples in in an Ecuadorian jungle. And I remember days whenever I was dry, days when I wasn't sure I wanted to continue going on the path that I was going on as it related to serving Jesus and being about the things of Jesus. And I remember afternoons sitting down and reading through these journals and listening to him express his honest thoughts to God, listening to him uh, express what he was going through, uh, capturing it and conveying it all in the categories of faith. And, And I remember just seeing his heart for God and time and time and time again 
the warmth of his pursuit of God would jump into me and it would affect me and it would inspire me. You and I should learn to cozy up, cozy up with the men and women of the past and feel the heat of their desire for God to learn from their stories of faith so that we too might draw inspiration and continue pursuing our God. But the second word I want to put before you is not just is it inspiration that we draw in this text, There's this word, which isn't quite as warm or exciting, but it's an important word if we're going to understand what it means to run the race of faith. And so the second word I want to put before you is the word exertion. Strenuous exertion. The writer says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles and run with, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Understand that word translated race there. That word translated race comes from a Greek word, agon, and agon gives birth to our English term, agony. So this is what he's describing. I want you to agonize in endurance. I want you to run with endurance, understanding that with a race comes agony. None of you have ever run without breaking a sweat. If you've never broken a sweat while you're running, you're not running fast enough or hard enough. You're not really doing it if you're not sweating. If you're running a race, you're, in, you're expected to sweat. You're expect, your muscles are supposed to ache at some point in time. This is the, the imagery that the word race is drawing on. This, this race involves exertion. It involves sweating. It will have, there's moments when the life of faith will agonize. And so we want to consider that as we consider what it means to follow Jesus, that following Jesus, some of us have the assumption that if I'm saved by grace through faith, and that means I'm shifting my life into neutral and just kind of coasting downhill until all is said and done. But that's the exact opposite of what is being called, what we're being called to in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. We're not being called to a life of ease. We're being called to a life of exertion. Faith sweats. Faith agonizes. The life of faith is not easy. It's not a stroll next to Green Lake through Green Lake Park. It is a race that requires sweat, and at times your spiritual muscles will ache and you will experience agony. There will be days when you won't feel like going for it anymore. There will be days when the headwinds are blowing so strong against you that you don't know if you can keep going and you feel like you're not moving forward very well because it's just an agonizing thing to open up your Bible and to read it, or it's an agonizing thing to go to the Lord in prayer. It's an agonizing thing, it seems, at times to continue gathering with God's people on a, at a regular rhythm and at a regular cadence. The life of faith will sweat. Exertion is required. And since exertion is required, well, it's kind of required because the headwinds kind of blow so strongly against us. This is why when we're running, we want to make sure we become as aerodynamic as possible. We, won't, we don't want to make the race harder than it already is, Right? This is why when you see runners run, they wear those ridiculously short shorts showing way too much thigh, not much going on there. And, and then you've got this dynamic where they're wearing these aerodynamic sunglasses now and they're shaving their head and their, their clothes weigh like negative poundage as they're moving as quickly with the least resistance as possible. They're, they're, streamlining, they're streamlining themselves so that they might run and they might press through the agonizing moments. They don't want the race to be harder than it should be. And so they strategically set themselves up in a streamlined fashion. Well, essentially, when we are exerting ourselves in the life of faith, the writer is calling us to get streamlined as well. 
This is why he says, I want you to lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles. I want you to get streamlined. I want you to become spiritually aerodynamic. I don't want you to allow the the race of faith to be harder than it already is by compounding it with weight or compounding it with sin, saying, I want you to lay all of that aside so that you can become streamlined in the race of faith. And this does require exertion. It requires choices. It requires discipline. It requires deciding to do things that would cause weights to be laid aside and sin to be removed from our lives. And so let's talk a little bit about what those two words represent. I think weight and sin refer to two different things. I think if the writer only wanted us to focus on casting sin out of our lives, then he would have just said sin. But the fact that he put weight and sin together in the one verse, meaning there's something, about, there's something called weight that we don't want to acquire or to accumulate in our lives. So what is that? Well, the word rate, weight refers to uh, this, this. It can also be translated an encumbrance. And I don't think an encumbrance is necessarily a sin. But essentially what the writer is saying that we should not amount anything that would slow us down and prohibit us from being able to run well or to continue pressing on in the race of faith. You see, what I think is going down with weight is a weight might be any good thing in your life that, well, it's any good thing in our lives that begin to take on more weight than it should in our lives. Good gifts from God that we begin to look to to do for us what they were never designed to do for us. You see, one of the unique things about the book of Hebrews is that most likely the Jewish Christians who were bailing out and pulling out of the race of faith, chances are they were returning to their Judaic heritage and their Judaic roots. In other words, they were returning to the law. They were turning their back on Jesus and returning to their Judaic practices, not realizing that Jesus had come to replace all of those Judaic practices and to fulfill all those Judaic practices. So here you have this good gift from God because the law is a good gift to people and the ceremonies and the practices of the people of Israel were all good gifts, but these good gifts were designed to lead them to Jesus, not to turn their back on Jesus. But now, since they are bailing on the faith, they're applying this weight to their lives as they're pulling back, wondering that they can't shake the weight of the law in their lives as Jesus had called them to. And so you consider weights as anything good that begins to take on way too much value and way too much importance and gaining way too much credit for our relationship with the Christ. You might say a weight is any good gift from God that is something you can't see yourself living and enjoying life without. Just as the law was designed to point people to Jesus, God's good gifts in our lives are designed to point us to Jesus and to point us to the future that he has promised for us. This is what C.S. Lewis was getting at in that quote you read a moment ago. That quote where C.S. Lewis says, all joy, all joy in this world emphasizes our pilgrim status All joy in this world reminds, beckons, awakens desire. Get this, our best havings in this world are wantings. Our best havings are designed by God to draw our attention to that which we are ultimately longing for, that which we are ultimately wanting. 
And just as the law was supposed to drive the Jewish Christians' attention to Jesus, all of the blessings that God puts into our lives, the good gifts that come into our lives from him, they are to be received with thanksgiving and responded to in ways that lead us to our ultimate longing and our ultimate wantings. So we want to lay aside anything in our lives, especially good things that begin to carry way too much weight. They, they are way too important to us. I'll give you an example. No one would say that a, that a hobby is inherently sinful, right? Hobbies are good. We want hobbies. Lots of us have hobbies. But a hobby can become a weight in your discipleship, a weight in your relationship with Jesus when that hobby begins to dictate your calendar and you begin to make sacrifices to your hobby. And perhaps one of the things you sacrifice first is gathering with God's people on a regular rhythm to worship Jesus and to study the scriptures and to pursue the things of God. If you begin to sacrifice the gathering with God's people, you begin to sacrifice participating in a missional community for the sake of a hobby or some other recreational activity, chances are that good thing from God is carrying too much weight in your life. And it is slowing you down. It's hindering you from fully flourishing in your relationship with Jesus because you're not pursuing, perhaps, the things that God is calling you to pursue. And in such instances, it's not a matter of repenting necessarily. It's a matter of reprioritizing. It's laying aside those weights, those good things from God that are carrying too much weight in your life, in your rhythms. If you're going to pursue Jesus, and if you're going to run the race well, we've got to learn to lay aside weight. And that requires exertion. It requires intentionality. But then the second word that is used here, and this one's a little more, uh, this one doesn't surprise us, but we should lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares us. And I love the language here in Hebrews 12 because it reminds us that one of the dangers of sin is that sin is sticky, sin is clingy. That the more we flirt with sin, the more we fiddle with sin, the more clingy and sticky it becomes. And we make mess. It's a lot like saran wrap. I don't know if you've ever tried working with saran wrap, but saran wrap is so sticky. Every time you mess with it, it just kind of balls up and it, it doesn't work like it's supposed to work. And this is the imagery here. That sin so easily ensnares us. Sin is sticky. And the more we flirt with it, the more we mess with it, the more of a mess it creates in our lives. And it will bog us down in the race of faith. You know, God has given us some remarkable pictures of his ways in his creation. And I read a description of a fly landing on a sundew plant this past week. And, and I think this description gets after well why we want to lay aside every sin because it's so sticky and it can produce harm in our lives, hindering us from running the race of faith. And so I just want to share this description with you because I find it illuminating. It says, imagine a fly landing on the leaf of a sundew plant. And as it lands there, it tastes one of the glands that grows there. Instantly, in that moment, three crimson-tipped, finger-like hairs bend over and touch the fly's wings, holding it firmly in a sticky grasp. The fly struggles mightily to get free, but the more it struggles, the more hopelessly it is coated with the adhesive. And soon the fly relaxes. But to its fly mind, things could be worse because it extends its tongue and feasts on the sundew's sweetness while it is held even more firmly by still more sticky tentacles. When the captive is entirely at the plant's mercy, the edges of the leaf fold inward, forming a closed fist. 
Two hours later, the fly is an empty, sucked skin. And the hungry fist unfolds its delectable mouth for another easy entanglement. That's the idea behind sin that so easily ensnares. You know, we don't sin because sin isn't enjoyable. We sin because sin is enjoyable. We find pleasure in it. And we fail to recognize at, at first that, that, the, that the pleasure sin provides us with is a fleeting pleasure. It is a momentary pleasure. And so the more we flirt with it, the more we, we engage it, the stickier it becomes and the harder it will be for us to get out of it. And over time, we will find life being drained out of us. We'll find joy being sucked out of us, hope being sucked out of us, satisfaction being sucked out of us. And so when that happens, you're not going to be able to run because there'll be no, no life in you that, that can run. There'll be no energy in you because you'll have that life just sucked out of you if you're not laying aside the sin that so easily entangles, the sin that so easily ensnares us. And so we want to check that, don't we? We want to hear the, the writer of Hebrews when we are told, lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares. Let's, let's check it. And it's not easy. It does require exertion. It requires fighting against sin in our lives. It requires discipline. It requires making intentional decisions with the way you are going about your life. And this shouldn't surprise us. It doesn't contradict the nature of Jesus. It doesn't contradict the way of grace in our lives. Remember what Jesus said to his initial followers. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says, If any one of you are going to follow me, if any one of you follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, not just once, but every day. You are to die to yourself and you are to follow Jesus. That requires exertion. That requires energy. That requires discipline. That requires commitment. That requires choices. He says similar things in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, when he's telling his disciples, look, I want you to take sin seriously because sin can kill you. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Why would Jesus say that? I think he would say that because we are to take sin seriously. Sin ensnares, sin entraps, sin sucks life out of us. It needs to be resisted. It needs to be warred against. So if our eyes cause us to sin, we want to gouge them out. Not literally, but we are to take sin seriously. We are to flee that which seeks to ensnare us and seek to trap us in this life. And again, it's not a contradiction to God's grace towards us. When you get into the writing of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, Paul connects this, this idea of God's grace toward him and the exertion that he's showing as a result of God's grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, listen to what Paul writes there. He says, by the, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. His grace toward me was not in vain. How? Why, why not? Well, because the grace that God showed Paul was a grace that energized him. It was a grace that compelled him to exert himself in the life that he was living so that he would say, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. When God's grace floods our souls, understand that with his grace comes energy, comes exertion, comes a desire to fight against anything that will keep us from seeing the beauty of Jesus and savoring the sweetness of Jesus. Anything that would compete with Jesus' lordship over our lives, that's precisely what God's grace in us intends to combat, intends to war against. 
Now, I've talked to Christians on a number of occasions that have, that have come to me seeking counsel because they're struggling with different sins and they're struggling with different uh, things that they've kind of brought into their lives and they're wrapped up in. And they're, a lot of times these conversations center around their being afraid, thinking that, well, how do I know I'm saved if I'm still struggling with this or I'm still struggling with that? And I want to confess this and I want, I want to check it, but it's so hard. What, what, how am I to make of this struggle that I'm going through? And I can't seem to shake these temptations and snares and things. And in almost every one of the conversations, I give the exact same piece of counsel. I'll look at them and I'll say, you know, I, I'm, not str- I'm not concerned about you because you're struggling. I would be more concerned about you if you weren't struggling. You see, when you have a conscience that is struggling, a conscience that is wrestling with sin and and worried about weights bogging us down from seeing the beauty of Jesus and savoring the beauty of Jesus, when you have a conscience that's beating in that direction, that's evidence of grace in your life. So if you're confessing sin and if you're repenting of sin and if you're fighting against sin in your life, that's all evidence of grace and it serves your assurance. It doesn't contradict it. God's grace towards us produces that type of exertion so that we fight against anything that would challenge Jesus' role and challenge Jesus' leadership and Jesus' honor in our lives. So that's the second word we want to consider in light of this, the way we respond to all these stories of faith. We respond by way of inspiration. We respond by way of exertion. The next word I want to put before you is this idea of progression. Every race that anyone runs in is intended to make progress. The Christian life isn't ran on a treadmill. It's not that dull, right? It's not that futile. Sure, you may be burning some calories, but it's so boring running on a treadmill. The Christian life isn't ran on a treadmill. It's a life distance race that we are engaging with the things around us, following Jesus in the world that is. And as we run the race of faith, we are intended and expected to make progress. We are supposed to mature in our relationship with Jesus. We are supposed to get closer to Jesus by way of intimacy and affections. Our faith is to strengthen over time as we mature in our relationship with Jesus, making progress. Now, when I consider my own life and I consider this just things that people look at, notice when they see me, there's really one thing that people kind of look to to be able to tell that I'm actually maturing that I'm progressing in life, that I'm kind of aging in life, and that's my beard, right? Like, I grew my beard because without my beard, I look more like this. And that's, that's, that's a timeless picture right there. I, I, if I shave my beard, I'm still, Kim still looks the same. It's cool for her. It's not cool for me. <laughs> the difference between somebody taking me seriously as a mature adult And the difference between somebody taking me seriously as a mature adult or coming up and asking me, hey, can I help you find your mom? The difference is my beard. It's the one thing that people look to to draw that distinction, to see that, yes, I am progressing. Well, there's one thing that we've, there's one variable in our lives that attributes to our progression. If you want to progress, if you want to mature as a follower of Jesus, there's only one thing that can really bring that about and has everything to do with where you're looking, has everything to do with what is written in the very next phrase. The writer says, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, looking to Jesus. 
If you want to make progress in your faith, you will only make progress to the degree in which you are looking to Jesus. You're focused on Jesus. You're thinking about Jesus. You're talking to Jesus. You're believing Jesus. If you're going to progress in your faith, it has everything to do with what you're looking at. Are you looking to Jesus? And that's different from how some of us have been discipled as we've walked the Christian life because some of us have this impression that, well, if I'm, gonna, if I'm really maturing in my faith, if I'm making progress in the race of faith, then that must mean or the sign for that is that I'm not sinning as much as I used to. And so you're improving morally, but I don't think improving morally is a sure sign that you are maturing in your faith. The goal of the Christian life isn't to simply live a life that is moral or to live a life that sins less. The goal of the Christian life is to fall in love with Jesus, is to look to Jesus. So we're not saying, okay, well, if I'm maturing, then I'm not going to be sinning anymore and there's going to be less weight in my life. No, you're only going to progress. You're only going to mature when you're looking to Jesus. You realize how miserable the Christian life would be if all that was called of you is to check sin in your life? And to not do bad things, not to think bad things, not to uh, feel bad things. You realize how boring of a Christianity that would be? But the Christian life isn't simply about checking negatives. The goal of the Christian life is about pursuing greatness. It's about looking to Jesus. So you know you're progressing in your faith when your love for Jesus is intensifying. When you're loving Jesus, looking to him as the founder and perfecter of your faith. When you're enamored with the fact that he lived the life that you could not live, when he died the death for your sin's forgiveness and he rose from the grave to conquer sin, to conquer Satan, to conquer death, when that story more enthralls your soul, that's when you know you're making progress. You're falling in love with Jesus. You're looking to him, the, the founder and perfecter of your faith. So we want to progress. And the only way we're going to progress is when we're looking to Jesus by faith. But then the next word, the next word I would put before you, not only are we, are we applying these stories by way of progression, but we want to apply these stories by way of perseverance. To progress in your faith, to fall in love with Jesus, to trust Jesus, it does require perseverance. You see, the concept of perseverance, it shows up all over this passage. It pops up in verse 1. Let us run with endurance or perseverance, the race that lies before us. And then when we, are, when we are told to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, we are told that he, for the joy that was set before him, endured. He, too, persevered. You drop down to verse 3, even, and there you find we're, we're told to consider Jesus who persevered or endured strong headwinds blowing against him, then coming in the form of hostility from sinners, and yet he endured, he persevered. And really what we're being called to here in this passage is we're being given the sober reminded that it's not so much how you start the Christian life, it's how you finish. It's not so much how you start journeying with Jesus, it's completing the race, it's how you finish. And when it comes to perseverance, running the race in this direction, understand perseverance has little to do with speed and it has everything to do with stamina. It's not about how fast you're running through this world. It's how much stamina is present in your faith. How do you handle the low tides in your life with Jesus? How do you handle suffering and opposition that arises in your life? How do you respond to those moments? 
Is there perseverance in your faith? Is there stamina in your faith? The race of faith requires it. Perseverance requires stamina. A guy by the name of Kent Hughes tells the story of a guy named Bill Broadhurst. And I find his story incredibly encouraging as it is a story of perseverance. And let me share it with you. In 1981, Bill Broadhurst entered the Pepsi Challenge 10,000 meter race in Omaha, Nebraska. Surgery 10 years earlier for an aneurysm in the brain had left him paralyzed on his left side. Now on that misty July morning, he stands with 1,200 other runners. The gun sounds and the crowd surges forward. Bill throws his stiff left leg forward, pivots on it as his foot hits the ground. His slow plop, plop, plop rhythm seems to mock him as the pack races into the distance. Sweat rolls down his face. Pain pierces his ankle, but he he keeps going. Some of the runners complete the race in about 30 minutes. But two hours and 29 minutes later, Bill reaches the finish line. A man approaches from a small group of remaining bystanders. Though exhausted, Bill recognizes him from pictures in the newspaper. That man's name was Bill Rogers, the famous marathon runner, who then drapes his newly won medal around Bill's neck. Bill Broadhurst's finish, Bill Bro- Bill Broadhurst finish was as glorious as that of the world's greatest, even though he finished last. His finish was as glorious as that of the world's greatest, even though he finished last. Why is that? Well, it's because he ran with perseverance, right? Because stamina is more important than speed. There's a lot of people who come out the gates sprinting in the Christian life. But it's not so much how you start, it's how you finish. That's what determines the race of faith or the quality of the race that is being run. So that we're believing Jesus all the days of our lives. And when we leave this world, we're leaving this world believing Jesus, trusting Jesus. We're setting our hope on Jesus and we're persevering in that faith. Even though at times we're just plopping along in our journey with Jesus. And the good news of the gospel is that when we cross the finish line and our days in this world is over, what happens? The greatest of all time comes to us and he wraps his his medal around our neck. And we are treated with honor and dignity. We are accepted and adored. We are loved by God forever and ever. Why is that? Because Jesus has already gone the distance for us, right? He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who guarantees that the life we're living in faith right now is not a life to be lived in vain. He's the one who guarantees that that we never have to give up because in the end, we're going to be with Jesus. And just as Jesus lived for the joy that was set before him, you and I too live for the joy that is set before us. We're pursuing Jesus. We're moving towards Jesus. And one day our joy in Jesus will be fully satisfied. That's worth persevering. That's worth enduring. That's worth pressing on even when the headwinds are blowing strong against us and you are just plop, plop, plopping along. You know that that our finish will be as glorious as that of the world's greatest because Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. One of my heroes in the faith is a guy by the name of John Stott. He died a few years ago, but he was a British pastor who made much of Jesus for a long time. 
And just before he died, he had a friend come to his deathbed and ask to pray for him, saying, what can I pray for you? And John Stott looked up at his friend, and this is what he said. After decades, decades, decades of, of living by faith and making much of Jesus, this is what he said. He said, I want you to pray that I will be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. Pray that I will remain faithful even till I breathe my last breath. That's perseverance. That's the guy who's tuned in to the race of faith. That's the guy who understands the fifth word I want to put before you. And that fifth word is completion. The fifth way we consider these stories and how they give shape to our lives is taking hope in the fact that the race can and one day will be completed. I love how the passage ends at the end of verse 12 where it says Jesus ran for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross and despised the shame. But then notice it says Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now when you consider the right hand of the throne of God, there's a few things you've got to keep in mind. There's a few important aspects to that dynamic. One, the right hand of the throne of God is a place of pleasure. Psalm 1611, at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So Jesus is reconnected to his father. He's enjoying his father forever. He's, he's there in the, in the place of pleasure at the right hand of the throne of God. But not only is it a place of pleasure, it is a place of power. As he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, he is reigning and ruling over every aspect of his creation. He's orchestrating and overseeing the plan of redemption that is underway right now in the world. He reigns in power, but there's another element that I think should be an encouragement to you and encouragement to me as we run this race of faith. Not only is that right hand a place of pleasure and a place of power, when you look back at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, you are cued into what Jesus is doing right now as he is seated at the right hand of his Father. Listen to how Jesus' ministry is described there. But because Jesus remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, get this, he is always able to save those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. Meaning he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father so that he might pray for people like you and me so that he might pray for those of us who are still running the race of faith. He's praying right now so that he can guarantee one day you and I will complete the race of faith. But the question I would ask you is, what do you think Jesus is praying? What do you think he's interceding for you right now? Well, I think to answer that question, you and I don't have to look too far in the scriptures. You just come to the story of Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' top disciples. He hung out with, more closely with Jesus than almost anybody else in the, anyone else in the world. And, and Peter, if you're familiar with his story, you know that he was a guy who oftentimes stuck his foot in his mouth. He was a guy who's most famous for denying Jesus three times. He just kind of stumbled and bumbled along the way. He wasn't quite firing on all cylinders a lot of times in his journey with Jesus. But there came a moment where Jesus sat him down and he warns Peter. He says, look, there's coming a moment when you're going to deny me three times. And when he's telling Peter this, listen to what he says. Luke chapter, Luke chapter 22. Sorry, yeah, Luke 22 verse 31. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, I want you to know that Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. I have prayed that your faith may not fail. Don't you love that? And then he goes on. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What did Jesus pray for Peter? He said, Peter, I'm praying that when you fall, you'll be able to get back up and keep going. 
I'm praying that your faith will not fail. What do you think Jesus is praying for you right now at the right hand of the Father? I believe he's praying that your faith doesn't fail. I believe he's praying that when you fall, you can confess and get back up and keep running by grace. I believe he's praying that you, your faith will be preserved all the way to the end and that one day your race will be completed and you will step into the presence of God enjoying Jesus forever. There's a lot of insurance to be drawn from the fact that Jesus is praying that prayer for us, that he's praying this for his people. Don't let their faith fail. Don't let their faith fail. And when they fall, let them come back and strengthen their brothers. Let them come back boasting all the more in my grace, boasting all the more in my cross, boasting all the more in my goodness towards my people. You see, God preserves his people to the end, and that preservation comes by way of Jesus' willingness to pray for us and to intercede for us. I experienced the power of this when I was in high school getting ready to graduate. And at that time, my relationship with Jesus was in a lull. It was in a low point because I hadn't trusted Jesus in a lot of decisions I was making. And so I wreaked a lot of self-inflicted havoc and I brought a lot of self-inflicted havoc into my life due to my own sin. And it got to the point where I believed God didn't love me anymore. He didn't want me anymore. I, I even thought maybe I've disqualified myself from the race of faith. And I remember during one day I was working at the shoe department selling shoes in high school. And, and I was in the back stocking shoes and I was having a conversation with Jesus. And I was saying, Jesus, I, I don't blame you if you're done with me. In fact, I may be done with you because I can't seem to get this thing right. And as I was praying to Jesus, just kind of giving up, basically, a lady walked into the back. I'd never seen her before and I haven't seen her since. And she just walks back to where she didn't belong. And she pulled out a slip of paper from her pocket and she handed it to me. And I took that sheet of paper, I opened it up, and on it were written the words from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And those words read this, that he who began a good work in you will, be fate, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Out of nowhere, this timely word coming from a complete stranger. God's word to me in that moment to encourage me, look, that which God started in you, he's not going to give up on. So you don't have to give up on it either. And if you're in a situation where you're tempted to give up right now and bail on the race of faith, I want you to know that Jesus isn't giving up on his people. And since he's not giving up on you, you don't have to give up on yourself and you don't have to give up on him. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Your race will be completed. There is a goal. There is a finish line. And you, by grace, through faith, can and will cross it. So don't give up. Even though the headwinds may be blowing strong against you, don't give up. Run the race of faith. Run it all the way to completion. I love the way the song Amazing Grace ends. If you're familiar with the flow of Amazing Grace, it gets to the last, one of the last verses of the song where John Newton would write, Through many dangers, toils, and snares we have already come. Life has been hard up to this certain moment. T'was grace that brought us safe thus far, but then he says, and grace will lead us home. Grace has brought us this far. Grace will carry us all the way through. We can trust that, we can believe that, we can run by faith. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give grace to us now? Would you shore up our faith and strengthen our awareness of your love for us and of your power for us and all the things that you desire to do 
in and through us so that we might press on in the race of faith so that we might not pull up too early, but that our race would be completed, that we would live by faith, and yes, we would die in faith. God, help us to be faithful to you up until our very last breath. God, we, we pray that believing that you are ultimately faithful to us, and so we trust you in all things, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.